Aquillow. Season 3. Chapter 1. Dancing Lights at the End of the Tunnel. Have you ever had one of those moments where you no longer see yourself from within your own body? Sorry, I'm making it sound crazy, but what I mean is, have you ever felt like you were observing a situation from an outside perspective? Like you're watching a recording of a scene in which you participated, in which you're clearly a key actor, but not actually living it? Like you forgot the events ever happened, and you're just seeing the memory anew. I think it's called dissociation, or something. It's the strangest thing, and I, for one, do not like it. But it's what this morning feels like. And, if I'm honest, what a lot of mornings have felt like since this summer. Every time the sun is just right and the light is hitting the cars outside in a certain way, I seem to step back from my body and just let it all go on autopilot. Maybe there's more to it. Maybe Olivia uses a certain turn of phrase or Gulliver laughs in a particular way. I don't know, but it's like this secret code is punched into the keypad of the universe and it unlocks a predictable set of rules. It doesn't last, just a moment. Just long enough for me to look at the front door to the Aquilo Cafe. My cafe. And imagine that day when Peter and Agnes first walked in. Then, the error, that strange bug in the system that messes with how I perceive time, writes itself, and I'm back to being me. Back to being now. If I just poured hot coffee on my hands, I can scream ouch and start making excuses that it's an accident. If I lost the train of conversation, I can say pardon and feign that some noise distracted me. Or, if it's today, and it happens again, I can drop a pastry on the counter, say, oops, pick it back up and put it aside. Because I can't serve a pastry that fell off its plate to a customer. But I can eat it later myself, or feed it to the raccoons in the back. It's been a few months since Agnes got on a bus and left Aquilo for, well... I don't like to think about it, but most likely forever. I can't even say that it's because I miss her that I get these strange flashbacks to her arrival. I mean, I do miss her, but she's not the only one I keep expecting to see walking through that door, welcomed by sunshine and the chime of bells. There's also Peter. So maybe there's a bit of PTSD in there somewhere. Something about that day when two demons walked into my coffee shop, ordered cakes, cookies, and coffee, and changed my life. I'm a big girl. I've had my heart broken before. Screw you in particular, Trevor. But never by demons. Now, as I mumble my apologies with a bright smile, there are no longer any demons in the woods of Aquilo. None that I know of, at least. Peter is dead. The hellhound that slipped in during the spring equinox is dead. Even my old nemesis, the monster that even Doris couldn't kill but only feed, the hunger demon, is dead. Everything's fine now, right? I put a fresh croissant on the plate and slide it across the counter in front of Ian. He smiles, does that weird little gesture with his right hand fingers that I think serves as a blessing, and digs in. To his right is my good friend Gulliver, who, I'm glad to say, has finally learned to park his enormous truck down the road. When he remembers. 
and when there's room. Like clockwork, he's here every Friday with deliveries, and as is his habit, he hangs around until the evening, drinking coffee, eating sandwiches and pastries, and chatting it up with the local crowd. Further down, there's Olivia Fig, who, just this morning, brought me a crate of jars filled with sweet apple butter to refill the display next to the counter. It's a good thing we have, the figs and I. They provide fresh apples and apple products that I use in my baking. Customers devour and love them and ask where they can get some of their own. I point them to the gingham line baskets filled with jars from which they almost inevitably make a purchase. Olivia and I split the profits. I'm sure it's not as much business as her ciders make, but it's fun to be collaborating with a friend. With the care of a lion tamer, I fill the great wood and brass contraption that serves as the Aquilos coffee machine. I hesitate to call it my coffee machine. This beast is still Doris's creature. I swear, the way it hisses burning steam at me every time I try to brew a cup, it's like it's waiting for my great-grandaunt to return and remove me. To the coffee machine, I remain an intruder, no matter who else in town has accepted my presence. I fill a fresh pot and proceed to make the rounds of the dining room, stopping at each table to warm everyone's cup. Detective Wilson is sitting in a corner near the window, reading a novel. Science fiction, judging by the cover. I'd never pegged the good detective for the kind to read about aliens and robots, but then again, he's a strange, solitary man. I put on a brave, happy face when I get to the table of Orléans and Alessandria. The Inquisition is never a completely welcome sight at my café. In fact, I'm not sure they're ever welcome anywhere in Aquilo. But no one dares turn them away. Orléans is pleasant enough, bowing his head with a generous expression of gratitude on his lips. His counterpart, the tall, dark-skinned Alessandria, is far less gracious, barely growling when I fill her cup. Personally, I don't mind the two all that much. I wouldn't call them harmless. They are anything but. However, they mean as well as could be expected. Normally, I might even sit down and chat them up a bit. I've taken it as a personal challenge to break open Alessandria's shell and get to know her better. But today, today I have a different goal. I whisper you're welcome to the two before making my way to my real target. There's a table in the Aquilo Cafe. It sits in the middle of the dining room, and there are two lines painted atop its surface. When you look at it from the counter, there's a red line on the left of the middle and a blue line on the right of the middle. Half is on the Canadian side of the border, while the other is on the U.S. side. No one uses that table. Even when the Aquilo is at capacity and there's nowhere else to sit, customers will choose to either wait or take their orders to go. Only two people ever sit at that table. Mayor Byrne and Mayor Lagasse. Both are the elected officials that govern the city of Aquilo. Byrne is in charge of the part that sits south of the border, while Lagasse is in charge of the north. This is apparently how they split duties at Town Hall, too, each having an office across the hall from the other. They're a team, I suppose, and in some ways they seem indistinguishable from one another. Oh, and there's this other thing they do, of which I only learned last spring. On the equinox, they fend off demons and close a hellgate in the woods. How many people can say that about their elected officials? I stand over their table, coffee pot in hand, the friendliest customer service smile on my lips. My eyes scan over the two mayors. 
Last time, it was Mayor Byrne who acquitted their less-than-bureaucratic duties and fought off the infernal hordes, or whatever it is they do. She lost an eye and the better part of two fingers in the process. Though you couldn't tell about the eye, her prosthetic is flawless. The autumnal equinox was only a few days ago, and the two of them did skip a day where they would have normally stopped in for breakfast, coffee, and their traditional working lunch. Thankfully, I see no fresh wounds or scars on either of them. Indeed, they both look to be in good spirits and as intact as you'd want any politician willing to fight demons to be. Can I warm your cup? I beam the question as if I were made of sunlight. Oh, no thank you, Miss Dufour, says Mayor Byrne, putting a three-fingered hand over her cup. In fact, I should have had tea today. Now I'm going to be jittery all afternoon. I laugh my understanding. Not that I really understand. A little over a year ago, I was still a student. I lived on being jittery from coffee. If I didn't have enough caffeine in my veins that I felt the world was dancing, that was my cue to slam another cup down my throat. But it pays to be polite in small talk. S'il te plaît, Mayor Lagasse says, nudging her own cup in my direction. Seulement la moitié, par contre. I take my time pouring the coffee, long enough to keep the small talk going. So, I start, trying to sound nonchalant. Everything okay? As if of one mind, both cock their heads, a perfect imitation of two people who didn't quite hear what I just said. You know, I push, with the thing. Mayor Lagasse frowns and shakes her head. She looks confused, but I can tell she's just playing coy. Sorry, dear, she says, switching to English. I have no idea what you're referring to. Can you elaborate? I look around at the crowded dining room. One table over are the two inquisitors, calmly drinking their own coffee and nibbling on their food, but also casually listening in on my own conversation. You know, I mumble, unsure what to say next. The thing. I stomp back to the counter, doing a poor job of hiding my frustration. Not that I'm trying to obfuscate anything from the people waiting for me near the register and bakery display, but rather so I don't offend the mayors who I just spoke to. I gather you didn't get what you felt entitled to. Olivia's always had a bit of a snippy, know-it-all attitude toward me. Not that she's any more reserved with the other patrons of my establishment, but there's a bite of familiarity that edges closely towards the kind of sibling barbs Eric and I still throw at each other. No, that's not quite it. Olivia's been my Aquilo mom from day one, and I think it has to do with how closely she and my great-grandaunt were back when Doris was alive. What's most surprising is I let it slide all the time. The way these two treat me, it's like they don't even want their table privileges anymore. Wait, Gulliver pipes up, pushing an empty mug of coffee forward so I can refill it. What did you ask them? I'm trying to get a better understanding of the, you know things from the woods, but they don't seem very interested in sharing what they know. You mean the demons? Gulliver asks. Olivia gives my big trucker friend the kind of look that manages to both say shut up and ask, are you stupid, without uttering a single word. It's in the way she squints while raising both eyebrows and craning her neck away from the offending individual. Demons and magic and ghosts exist in a peculiar place within the conversational hierarchy at the Aquilo Cafe. The thing is, 
You never know who's had a genuine brush with the supernatural and who hasn't. Who's a charlatan and who's a true believer. And even in between these extremes, there's a long list of those who just don't fit either description. Like how, as a child, I thought of the world being split into two distinct flavors, salty and sweet. Things you ate as a main course or for dessert. Except for breakfasts, which break all the rules. And snacks, which are, by design, meant to cheat. Then, as I grew up and refined my palate, I discovered that there existed a gradient between those two flavors, where wonderful and exotic tastes could be found. That there were other savors that added complexity and texture to the world of food. Knowing the interaction of balance and complement between sweet, salty, sour, tart, acidic, etc. is the playbook of a great cook. Anyone can learn the rote chemistry for a bread to rise or a pie crust to bake right. But to then add the correct blend of ingredients that bring all the right flavors together in perfect harmony, or perfect conflict, to tell a story to the palate, that's more complicated. When it comes to the weird and wonderful, Aquilo is a place for gourmets. You can't split people between two extremes and expect you've got it all figured out. There are more than just believers and non-believers here. There are more subtle people, or worse, those who you don't know enough to put in any category. People like Stefan. As if on cue, or rather five minutes before his shift, Stefan makes his meek entry into the Aquilo Cafe. He's a tall one, almost as tall as Gulliver, who is himself what I would call cryptid-sized. But Stefan has the muscle mass of a sickly squirrel. It's like his body has never been exposed to proteins or fats, relying solely on calcium and willpower to move him around. His Aquilo apron barely makes it to mid-knee. Stefan is the result of many things I could never completely give up after Agnes's departure. Bad enough that I had my heart torn in two with half getting dragged across the continent, but I also lost my only employee. Having run the Aquilo for nigh onto a year by my lonesome, doing all the cooking, baking, cleaning, bussing, and managing, it was a welcome change to have someone else to shoulder some of the work. I couldn't quite replace Agnes, but I could hire someone else to run the place a few hours a day so I could have some semblance of a life. And that ended up being Stefan, who, I might add, is the perfect man for the position. A few years my junior, so I can feel comfortable enough bossing him around and without feeling too guilty for paying him minimum wage. He worked at a Starbucks in Sherbrooke the previous summer, so he's required almost no training at all. Most importantly, Stefan is the poster child for boring. Aside from his height, he leads a positively soporific lifestyle. His hobbies are television and playing online video games. The highlight of his free time is having a chat with his parents. He's so devoid of drama and angst that he might as well be a robot, but even that would make him far more interesting than he actually is. The chances of Stefan being a secret demon, or a werewolf in disguise, or building himself a girlfriend from actual body parts of dead women are slim to none. There isn't room in his DNA for even the hint of a weird chromosome. That means he's safe. So, with that in mind, when Stefan walks in and takes over his shift, we all tend to put a sock in it and avoid chatting about the ghost of Julia Remington's husband, or the immortal raccoons in the back, or that time John Pebblesmith tried to bring his wife back from the dead. 
a story for another time. You're late, Olivia says, deadpan. The words stop Stefan in his tracks. For a second, he looks like we've all transformed into pumpkins right before him, disbelief writ large in his bugged-out eyes. Oh, God, he stammers. I'm so sorry. He picks up his pace as if hurrying those last five steps, four, considering the length of his legs, would make up for his tardiness. Tardiness, I might add, that Stefan is no more guilty of than I am of discovering quantum physics. For some reason, Olivia has made it her business to torment my new employee and exploit his gullibility at every opportunity. Today, it's a random accusation of being late. Last week, after running into him at the grocery store, she offhandedly mentioned that she thought he was supposed to be working a shift at that very moment. So Stefan stormed into the Aquilo moments later, blubbering more apologies. One day, he'll figure her out, and I hope there will be hell to pay. Until then, I hate to admit, I get quite the laugh from every one of Olivia's pranks. Now, now, I say, untying my own apron. It's fine. You're on time. Early, even. It's hard to be reassuring while also stifling a laugh, and Stefan fails to hear me as a result. I abort my attempts to correct his false impression and let him get ready for work. Meanwhile, I grab a chicken wrap and a bottle of water and make my way around the counter to sit amongst the other customers. A year ago, I would have hated to be here with those loathsome consumers. Now, I've grown to understand that I can take a back seat to my cafe once in a while and let someone else serve the food in my stead. After all, they're still my sandwiches with my carefully picked ingredients and expertly marinated meats. The croissants are my recipe and the cakes mixed with my spoon. It isn't required for my hands to be the ones serving each dish in every cup of tea or mug of coffee. Besides, if the dream of one day running my own chain of high-end restaurants ever does become reality, I'll have to know how to delegate. Having one college student pouring the drinks and sliding the plates across tables is as good a start as any. Of course, there's one person who's not quite yet on board with the whole don't tell Stefan about the demons pact we've all secretly signed. Gulliver. It's not that Gulliver is dumb. Far from it. There's quite a sharp mind behind that loud, expressive laugh of his. But there's also an entire lifetime of not caring what people think. In that sense, Gulliver's a step ahead on the evolutionary ladder. He's no longer homo sapien, but rather homo whatever. And it makes him oblivious. You know what your problem is, Miriam? He asks, mixing a disgusting amount of raw sugar into his coffee. You're starting too big. Forget demons. Ed. Olivia thankfully cuts him off, pulling his cup away from him. That's enough. It takes a moment for him to figure it out, that it's not the sugar he's told to cut, but rather his speech, but he gets it. In a very Gulliver way. All right. Sorry. No demon talk. In a way, it's a blessing that Olivia preemptively flustered my sole employee. In his rush to make up for being late, he's not. Stefan isn't exactly paying attention to our conversation. Once he's done getting the register ready and made sure he's got his notepad and pencil and gone over the list of specials and plats du jour, he's off to the kitchen to get pastries for the display. Right, Gulliver continues, barely interrupted. 
As I was saying, instead of starting with the you-know-whats, why not tackle something a little easier? You know, a problem with a lower body count. Oh, Gulliver. Who else but you would rate the mysteries of Aquilo by the number of deaths they leave in their wake? Sounds reasonable enough. I bring my chicken wrap to my mouth. Is there anything with zero fatalities I could cut my teeth on? Gulliver takes his cup back from Olivia and gives it a thoughtful sip. He savors it like he does everything else, with the thoroughness of a sommelier. All the while, the pupils of his eyes seem to be reading an invisible list only he can see. Oh yes, of course, and it's the perfect time of year, too. He seems so excited about it that for a second, I'm kind of taken in. Olivia doesn't look quite as convinced, but she does lean in to hear him out, her own cup held up in both hands. The Doncelites, he says, as if I would immediately know what it is he's talking about. While I'm completely ignorant of what these Doncelites are, Olivia gives a knowing nod and even Ian smiles his approval from the end of the counter. All right, I say, feeling more the outsider than I have in months. What the hell are Doncelites? It's dark and a little cold in the woods right outside of Aquilow. I can hear the wet underbrush squishing under each step, and the cool dew that still hangs from the fallen leaves and barren branches have made the bottom of my leggings sodden. The small denim jacket over my shoulders is doing a poor job of keeping me warm, and my ears burn from the cold November air. The wind, barely impeded by the naked trees and occasional evergreen, finds the skin at the back of my neck and caresses my spine in the process. This is the kind of place and the kind of time that Aquilo has taught me to be the most dangerous of all. I've met demons in these woods. I've seen one devour another, inadvertently saving my life. I've been inches from a succubus disemboweling her brother while under branches in a moon not unlike the ones above right now. I hate these woods. If it weren't for Gulliver blazing the trail on this cold night, I would have turned around and gone back into the warmth of the cafe a long time ago. Even now, I can all too easily imagine sitting at the back of the dining room, listening to my earphones while going through a cookbook by Mary Berry and maybe even petting a raccoon. I could be doing all of these things while bathed in the warm light and cozy atmosphere of the place I call home. Instead, I'm out here, alone with a man named after a serial killer, hunting fairy lights. Because that's what doncelites are. Apparitions, illusions seen in the distance by those walking through the woods at night when alone and probably drunk. If this doesn't sound like a very ache-willow thing to be hunting, not after all the demons and ghosts and maybe vampires, then you're right. It doesn't. People mistaking fireflies in fall for otherworldly manifestations is the most boring suburban myth imaginable. This is the sort of thing I expect from Albany, or maybe Saint-Hilaire. Places steeped in the mundane, incapable of finding wonder except by recycling the same myths that have been debunked and explained in hundreds of similar municipalities. Yet, I go along with it. Olivia seemed to think it's a genuine mystery to solve, and assuming I'm not the new target of her mischief, that should be enough to convince me. Though, if it is a worthwhile enigma to tackle, 
It's certainly a cold, damp, and uncomfortable night to do so. Hell, now that I think about it, maybe this is Olivia's way of forcing me to confront my fear of dark woods. If that's the case, she might find I replaced the sugar in her next cup of coffee with a copious amount of salt. I'm glad I listened to Gulliver, though. When he suggested I pack a thermos of hot soup and maybe some mulled wine, I thought this was just his own ogre's hunger trying to trick a meal out of me. Now, after a few hours of hunting down mysterious orbs of light, I can see the wisdom in it. In fact, I'd chow down on the hot soup right now if we were to so much as slow down. Where are we going? I whine, a little louder than I intended. Shh! Gulliver answers without slowing his pace. We're almost there. The last time I saw them, it was just at the other edge of the woods, across the Pickering Farm's wheat field and in the fir forest there. None of that sounds almost here. In fact, it all sounds very much way over there. Gulliver pulls back a branch, and when he releases it, the damn thing almost takes out my left eye by whipping me in the face. To make matters worse, I follow it up by stepping in a very deep, very cold puddle of rainwater. I'm not stupid. I put my waterproof boots on like a good Canadian. But this pit of muck is so deep that it spills over the top and into my boot, turning my scream of pain into a deep gasp of frozen shock. That's it. Forget the dumb lights and forget Gulliver. I'm going home. Just contemplating having to walk all the way back, facing an equal amount of dark and cold before I can pull off this sodden mess and take a warm shower is enough to make me despair. It's a good thing I'm skilled at the emotional alchemy that turns gloom into anger, and that I know how to use anger as fuel. All right, enough, I growl, ready to make my intentions known to Gulliver, hoping he'll follow me back so I don't have to trek alone. We can do the whole dancing light things next summer when it's a little less... Shh. I'm not used to Gulliver interrupting. Not so forcefully. Usually when he steps on someone's words, it's not by intention, but rather his oblivious nature preventing him from noticing that others are talking. Not this time. Not tonight. My friend is in full ghost hunting mode, and frankly, I don't think I've ever seen him be so serious before. He turns his head back to me, the white of his eyes almost glowing in the scant moonlight, but the unmistakable silhouette of a finger to his lips clear to see. When he turns back again, I follow his gaze and his other arm. It's stretched ahead of him, ending with his index finger pointing into the distance. Then, far ahead of us, between the branches and the tree trunks, I see a vast clearing. The wheat field. But even farther across from the open ground and where my eyes almost refuse to focus, I see it. A flash. The brief, flitting suggestion of a light. It's too bright to be the moonlight reflected on anything, and too pink to be a firefly. It takes a moment, maybe a whole minute, with my foot growing ever colder, but I see another. This one is green as key lime pie. Almost immediately, the pink one is there again, but for a while longer, bobbing up and down. What the... I murmur, expecting Gulliver to shush me again. Instead, he reaches back and takes my hand, pulling me along, following the last dozen meters of his improvised path. 
It's a fast pace and one I would have normally complained about, but instead, curiosity pulls me along just as sure as Gulliver does. We get to the edge of the woods. The Pickering's field looks like it's been laid fallow, but it's a miracle I even notice that. Besides, who cares? I can see them now, clear as day and almost as bright. A handful of them bobbing and weaving, spinning around the evergreens and gyrating up to the sky before dipping back down. When I was a kid, I loved ballet. I mean, what little girl doesn't? It's the cliche, isn't it? Ballet and horses. I wasn't that much into the latter, but I really had a thing for the former. In a way, that's how I imagined the dancers to be. Light, luminous beings that made a mockery of gravity. The spotlight would hit their beautiful outfits and reflect all of it to the audience as they moved across the stage, weightless and graceful. That's what those lights reminded me of, and for a moment... Who am I kidding? I must have stood there for ten minutes, and for all that time, all I could think of was how much this made me think of a ballet of light. It didn't matter if I'd later discover they were actually some farmer's forgotten Christmas display that did funny things to the water on the trees. For that too brief span of time, it was the magic Gulliver had promised. What are they? I surprised myself by breaking the silence. I don't know, Gulliver answers after a long while. I'd never seen such wonder in his eyes. He'd seen them before, but I think that, before tonight, even he doubted his memory. But aren't we here to find out? We were, weren't we? But even if that was the case, we remained frozen in place, watching the lights like awestruck children. When we do start moving again, my sodden foot feels so numb that I damn near fall flat on my face. The walk across the Pickering's field is slowed by wonderment, every step interrupted by fresh awe at the sight before us. That's when the music began to cut through the night. A soft, thumping rhythm that started in my chest, vibrating through my ribs and into my bones. While it, too, was beautiful in its own way, it kept a human quality that the lights lacked. I could feel the static of speakers and hear the artificial instruments of an electronic beat. Despite the mundane flaws of the music, it fit so very well with the dancing lights that it made for an appropriate addition. Sound and sight coexisting, adding to one another. By the time we cut through the first line of trees on the other side of the field, the music was deafening. It felt almost impossible that it could be so loud here, yet barely audible only a hundred yards away. That's when I saw them. The shadows. They moved in time to the music, in harmony with the lights, but with none of the beauty and finesse of either. They were awkward and clumsy, especially after witnessing such liquid grace from afar. What they lacked in dexterity, they made up in earnestness. The silhouettes... Those of people dancing had an honest dynamic to them, pent-up energy finding release, bodies throwing themselves in abandon to find escape in a place and time where they could. I know that energy. I'd felt it after a few beers at clubs in Montreal. I'd experienced it when I met Trevor, and we'd go dancing every Friday night for months. 
Gulliver and I finally break through from the tree line and into the clearing where the music, the dancing silhouettes, and most importantly, the dancelites are gathered. And oh, let me tell you, what a sight it is. Aquilo is written by J.F. Dubow and narrated and produced by me, Amy Frost. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. Want to support the show? Buy us a coffee. Go to ko-fi.com slash to donate. Aquilo has a Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash for details. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the username Aquilo. Aquilo.